Hello, and welcome to the Breathwork Club, a podcast to help you connect with your breathing. My name is Brian Malone, and thank you very much for joining. For this episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Matt Duar, a social emotional learning educator who specializes in mindfulness and breathwork. I discovered Matt's work recently, and he quickly became one of my favorite people in the world of breathwork. Matt's focus is on the psychological underpinnings of why we breathe the way we do, how some breathwork practices might not serve us in the way we think they do, and how developing self-awareness is the key to a sustainable breathing practice. His work brings mindfulness to schools, and he recently released a book called The Mindful Breathing Workbook for Teens, which is available now on Amazon. We talked about Matt's background, his struggles at school, and the influence of Zen Buddhism, which led to him living in a monastery in Korea. We discussed his approach to breathwork, some common myths around breathing practices, and the importance of emotional understanding and regulation in learning environments. Towards the end of the conversation, Matt leads a really beautiful mindful breathing practice. One thing that was mentioned in this chat is something that is called a pulse oximeter. If that's a term not familiar to you, it is a device you connect to your finger which estimates the level of oxygen in your blood. As Matt mentions, the usefulness of these may not be as big as it seems. I'm really grateful to Matt for taking the time to have this conversation. If you don't already, make sure to follow him on Instagram, where he posts super insightful content regarding breathwork and mindfulness. So here's my chat with Matt, I hope you enjoy listening. Okay, so first of all, Dr. Matt Duar, thank you very much for taking the time to join me on this podcast. I only recently came across you and your work, but I was very quickly just super inspired. To me, you kind of represent a a really interesting branch in terms of people who speak about breathing, in terms of you know, you come from a a very well-educated person, you speak about breathing and its benefits in a very accessible and in a very kind of straightforward way, which I think is beautiful. And one of the things as well, which seems to me is you kind of come from this with no particular agenda, if that makes sense. You know, it's kind of just, this stuff is really useful, give it a go. So I know you have quite an interesting story and, uh, and background of how you came to practices such as mindfulness and breath work. So I'd love to begin by giving you the opportunity to speak to that background. Uh, maybe let us know a little bit about your upbringing and how you sort of made your way towards these kind of practices. Brian, thank you for having me on the podcast, first and foremost. It's uh, nice to be here and finally connect. Um, in terms of my story, I always tell my students, I'm an educator by trade and training. I tell my students that I've earned a black belt in stress and anxiety over the years. Um, 
I grew up in a family that had a lot of emotion dysregulation growing up, death, divorce, and addiction. And so I was, from an early age, acutely aware of the impact of um, a chaotic environment on one's nervous system. And as I look back, now that I know so much more as an adult, uh, I can see that I developed all sorts of interesting habits as, as a child and young adult that were really unconscious attempts to self-regulate. And so one of the things I remember uh, to that end is going to bed at night and really just paying attention to my breathing and noticing that just by paying attention to my breathing, I could create a sense of emotional calm, that I could self-soothe. And that's kind of my some of my earliest memories of breathing go back to that, going to bed in a home that that felt crazy and unpredictable emotionally and being able to carve out a little island of um, calm just by paying attention to my breathing. Fast forward a bit, uh, in late high school, I came into contact with Buddhism and I was a horrible, horrible student for most of high school. In fact, I had to repeat two grades in school. First grade, I had to repeat. In my sophomore year of high school, I had to repeat because um, of behavior. I was very unruly. <laughs> and also because of grades and academic performance when I was in high school. And so I came into, a, this is a much longer story, but I came into contact with a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And it's kind of a, a strange sequence of serendipitous events that led to me finding this book. Um, but I found it. And when I opened it and started reading it, my life was changed. And it was the first time in my life where suddenly I felt like uh, the philosopher Plato always talks about the theory of remembrance, that in life, the soul is immortal, and we're never learning something new. We're just being, we're just recollecting what we've always known. And when I opened that book and I started reading, and it started talking about the nature of mind and emptiness and the interdependencies of life, etc., all of this just resonated on such a deep level as if I always already knew it but I was just being reminded. I was just hearing it again. And so this just flipped a switch in me. If I were to mark my life out on a timeline, that night when I opened that book, my junior year of high school, and I started reading it, that was the before and after moment. That's the pivotal moment in my life timeline where who I was before that moment and who I became after were, yes, in some ways, the same person. But in terms of kind of inner sense of self or identity, there was a total transformation. And ultimately, this led to, coincidentally, I met a Zen Buddhist monk from Korea uh, shortly thereafter. And my senior year of high school, I would spend lots of time at the Zen Center. He taught me how to meditate. Um, he had an amazing uh, collection of tea from all over the world. And so we would sit and we would talk and he had an amazing library of philosophy and religion. And uh, we would meditate, drink tea, sit and talk. I used to take him to the Pizza Hut buffet for lunch. He loved Pizza Hut. And I would even bring him to my school to give meditation lessons. And so at some point during that time, he, he talked to the head teacher in Korea. And he said, you know, you're really sincere about this. I talked to the head teacher. You have an open invitation to come to Korea and stay in any temple for as long as you want 
free of charge. You just got to get there. And so I'm like, whoa, this is awesome, right? So I go home. I tell my parents I want to delay going to college, and I want to go live in a Buddhist monastery. And I grew up in an Irish Catholic family, so this did not. Uh, my mother did not take this <laughs> too well. So um, I sat on it for about a year, and then during my sophomore year of college. I literally got up out of class one day. I walked down to the registrar. I withdrew from school. She said to me, why are you doing this? Have you talked to your parents? And uh, I said, oh, yeah, I talked to my parents. I, I hadn't talked to them. And I said, I'm doing this because I want to go live with Buddhist monks. And I remember the look she gave me. She thought it was an absolute nut job. And so uh, I basically, I was in New Hampshire at the time. I, I came home had a very tense conversation with my dad because he lost a semester's worth of tuition that he had paid and I got no credit for. Um, but I saved up money. I worked odd jobs. I got on a plane and I went to Korea and I lived in a Zen Buddhist monastery for four and a half months and trained with the monks. And so this just really opened up a whole different world and way of being for me. And obviously breath is a central piece of, um, of Zen practice and, and meditation. And so that was kind of my first formal introduction to um, breathing and meditation. And so after four and a half months, I came back and I became increasingly interested in secular mindfulness and then continued to practice to the present day. I, I still practice within the Zen tradition, um, but I'm also, my work, my professional work and research is really in the field of secular mindfulness and social and emotional learning. Um, and so I come to breath work through kind of that larger context, and which might be why um, some of the things I say about breath work are maybe a little different. And currently I've just finished up a, a program with Dr. Peter Litchfield, a graduate certificate program um, in breathing behavior analysis, where we use capno trainer technology and breathing biofeedback to look at breathing behavior and its impact on respiratory chemistry. So sorry, I just unloaded a lot of information on you. And sorry, we have some people doing some work suddenly here in the backyard with leaf blowers. And if it's too noisy, I apologize. They'll, they'll be gone in a moment. Absolutely fine. Um, it's a, a really fascinating life story Okay, can I ask, was there many, when you went to Korea, was there many other Western students or were you kind of the only one? <laughs> um, within, so Buddhism in Korea is called, I believe it's called the Choige, Chogi, Choige or Chogi order of um, Buddhism, which is like all the Zen Buddhism in Korea. And so I was within a branch called the Hanmaum uh, temples. And I think there were 14 Hanmaum temples. Um, which I believe that phrase means, if I remember correctly, it's been over 20 years, uh, one mind, the one mind temples. And so I was studying within the context of that. Um, and I was about two and a half hours south of Seoul. So we were in the mountains. I was the only uh, Westerner around. And I used to sneak out of the monastery at night to go get pizza in town. <laughs> and I eventually actually got caught and got in trouble uh, a number of times to the point where they moved my room so that they would know if I was leaving. Um, 
But when I would leave the monastery at night to go get pizza, because I was so hungry, um, I was a college student used to eating a ton of food. And, you know, you're living in a monastery, and you're barely eating. So it's always starving. I'd be sitting there meditating in the meditation hall, just daydreaming about food the whole time. Um, and when I would walk through town, it was the town was called Gamong. And people would come out from everywhere. It was like I was a celebrity because I was, I was American. And they would, people would come out of their homes and literally take me by the hand and pull me into their home and sit me down and just want to talk English. They would want to see if their English was good. They wanted to know where I was from. They were feeding me all sorts of stuff. It was unbelievable. I've never experienced hospitality like that in my life. So yeah, I was a total anomaly at that time for that part of Korea. Do you not have blamed your previous teacher on your pizza addiction? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a connection I've never made. Yeah, I should have. <laughs> um, I want to ask you, so for people who might not be familiar with the kind of terms you just referred to there in terms of the research you're um, undertaking in terms of breathing, biofeedback, would you mind explaining that a little bit? Yeah. So um, Dr. Peter Litchfield, who's an amazing human being, an amazing teacher, and, and really uh, kind of a revolutionary in, in the field of, of breathing, um, in breathing behavior and respiratory chemistry, he invented a machine. I actually have it right here called a Capno trainer. And it, uh, it's an expensive machine. Um, and it looks like this and it comes with a cannula. And so you, you hook it up and you're breathing into it and it's hooked up to your computer where you have software and the software is really the expensive part. And the software is giving you real time breathing biofeedback on the screen. As you breathe, it's showing you the waveforms of your breathing in relation to the chemical axis of, of respiration, CO2. So it's measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in the alveoli of the lungs at the end of an exhale. And that's representative of total arterial CO2 levels, right? And so you can see how your breathing behavior is serving or not serving your respiratory chemistry in real time. And so when you work with individuals using this technology, they're able to see how certain breathing behaviors are a disservice to their respiratory chemistry. And it's an absolutely fascinating um, process. In fact, I was just working with a woman a few weeks ago who had fainted six times, six times in two weeks. And she was at the point where she was afraid to leave um, her home. She had been in ambulances. She had been rushed to the emergency room. They had done every possible test on her. And they kept saying, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And she was having all of these issues. So we, uh, we met. I, before I even hooked her up to the machine, I noticed that she did this about 12 times in the first three minutes that we sat down. <sighs> she sighed like that. And I knew right away, just watching it, I'm like, this is a breathing issue. She's offloading way too much CO2 and she's doing it unconsciously because this is her learned behavior. This is her learned way of dealing with stress. And sure enough, I hooked her up to the machine and I said, I noticed you've done this breathing pattern a number of times since we sat down. And I showed her, I said, 
And she goes, oh, my deep breaths, they help me so much. That's what she said. They make me feel good. And I said, okay, so we're just going to start our session today. I want you just to do that for four straight minutes. I want you just to do your breathing like that for four straight minutes. And let's see what we find. And she said, okay. And sure enough, within two minutes, the first symptom that precedes her fainting came on. Right? And that's fullness in her ears. She felt a fullness in her ears, like a swishing in her ears and a fullness in her ears. And she said, oh, my ears are filling up just like, and I said, good, keep going. And she kept doing it. Then she felt tightness in her chest and shortness of breath. I said, good, keep doing it. And she kept doing it. And then she said, now I'm starting to feel, now 30 seconds later, I'm starting to feel dizzy. I said, okay, good, stop. I said, is that the same progression of symptoms that come on before you fainted? She said, yes, exactly. I said, good, we just solved your problem. Right? 15, 20 minutes, boom. And so obviously we didn't just end there. I showed her um, some recovery techniques to, to bring your CO2 back up. Um, but, but ultimately what's so fascinating about this technology and this way of approaching breathing is that it's, it's separating breathing and respiration. Breathing and respiration are interconnected, but they're not the same. And breathing is a behavior. Um, respiration is, is chemical. It's reflexive. And the significance of, of decoupling these two things is that we can learn to breathe in ways that do not serve our respiratory chemistry. This is huge. This is a paradigm shift. We can learn to breathe in ways that do not serve our respiratory chemistry. And so really the, the work that I engage in around breathing is using behavioral learning principles to understand breathing because all behavior is a function of its consequences. I'll say that again because that's a huge point. All behavior is a function of its consequences, including breathing. And so when we breathe in dysfunctional ways, we maintain those breathing habits because there is a payoff. And what did she say when I called out that she was breathing this way? <sighs> she said, oh, that my deep breathing, I love my deep breathing, it helps me. Yes, it serves her in the moment. And so the behavior persists as a function of its consequences. But the long-term consequences are that it's crashing her CO2 and giving her a very thin zone of physiological regulation so that in just a moment, she can be falling out of regulation and fainting. So again, I'm throwing a lot of information at you, but. It's, but it's an incredibly interesting topic. And I was wondering, I know it's potentially like a podcast within itself, but to add a little bit of context again, for maybe people who might not be familiar with the background to some of the stuff you're talking about, would you mind maybe just breaking down a little on the importance of carbon dioxide, its importance in terms of our, uh, the physiology of respiration and its influence on how we feel overall and how, let's say our relationship to carbon dioxide could become, as you said, like a learned behavior. Yeah. Um, so when people think about the significance of respiratory chemistry, we usually look at oxygen as, as the main gas um, but carbon dioxide is the total metabolic waste product of, of our system. 
right? And so it has not until recently, it hasn't received the credit that it deserves for maintaining physiological regulation um, because we think of it as a waste product. It's something we want to get rid of, but we don't want to get rid of too much. We need a certain level of CO2 in our system to maintain proper gas exchange. And this is known is the Bohr effect, and it's um, hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen um, in the presence of carbon dioxide. And so if there's not enough carbon dioxide in the blood um, at the level of gas exchange, hemoglobin is going to hold on to oxygen. And so one of the things that's really important, um, I don't have it with me. Oh, yes, I do. Right here. Uh, we, we pulse oximeters, people love to do breathing stuff and then look at pulse oximeters and they think when they have 100% saturation, look how good my deep breaths are. This is misguided because if you have 100% um, uh, on a pulse oximeter, 100% saturation, that likely means you're hypocapnic. And people are saying, what? That makes no sense. No, it makes total sense because you've got all this oxygen in circulation and none of it is being used. None of it is finding its way into the tissue because there isn't enough carbon dioxide. And so there are so many breathing programs that have people do breathing exercises that are big, deep breaths, deep breathing and everything. And then they use a pulse ox as evidence that the breathing is working. But all it's really showing is that the breathing is not working, that it's crashing their CO2, that they're not absorbing oxygen in their tissue as a result, and it's just circulating in the blood, which is why they have 100%. This, this, is, this is a big deal. There are so many breathing programs that use this as a metric for the effectiveness of a particular breathing protocol. And so um, there's a difference between being someone who has mastered a breathing technique or protocol and mastering it to produce a specific outcome. There's a difference between that and understanding what breathing is in and of itself as a behavior and how it functions within the totality of our physiology. Those are two different things. And so many times people talk about dysfunctional breathing and I'll say, well, what are you basing dysfunction on? And they'll say, well, when I watch them, they're breathing in this particular way. So they're basing the functionality of breathing based on breathing behavior with no knowledge of respiratory chemistry. That's absurd. That's like saying you know someone's cholesterol just by watching what they eat. You don't know that, right? There are many people who don't eat so well and their cholesterol is actually pretty good. And there are other people who eat fantastically and their cholesterol is not so great. Um, I would be an, an example. I eat fairly well. I exercise a ton. I run about 40 miles a week or more. I do all sorts of things. I'm lean. I'm all those things. And my HDL cholesterol is often below 40, which is very, very low. Um, I do all the things one should do to have higher HDL. But genetically, apparently, it's not whatever. So my point is, I'm going on a tangent, is that we cannot determine or assess dysfunctional breathing or functional breathing 
just by breathing in a particular kind of way. And when you hook someone up to a Capno trainer, who's a yoga teacher, or even um, I've done the program and I think it's a great program. So I'm not trying to, to bash this program. Um, never mind. I won't even say it because that's not fair. So we'll, we'll talk individually after. I don't want people coming after me. But there are people who are parts of, of programs who uh, believe certain things about breathing. And when you hook them up to a Capno trainer, they're the way their breathing behavior serves their respiratory chemistry, especially yoga teachers, a ton of yoga teachers think they, they go into their breathing technique and whatever, and all it does is crash their carbon dioxide. And then when I show them that, they're like, oh, this is why I only feel right during yoga class. And afterwards, I always feel like I have a hangover. It's like, well, yeah, because you're over-breathing in yoga class, you're crashing your CO2, Low CO2 helps you disassociate from your body. It kind of desensitizes you to your body, which a lot of people mistake as calm. Disassoci disassociation is being calm. And so they hover there for an hour or so during yoga class. And then when they go back to um, regular breathing, they take some of that dysfunctional breathing with, and then now they're in this chronic state of, of hypocapnia. Um, so... I answered your question and more. Thank you very much. It's, I think a lot of these things that you were mentioning, one of the things that sort of brings up for me is something that I've been very aware of in terms of breathing practices and, you know, even things that I would share myself um, in classes and stuff is kind of like my, my, I don't know if worry is a strong word, but the maybe the tendency for certain breathing practices or breathing techniques to become more of like a maybe like a band-aid or or a sort of like a, a mindful version of watching netflix for an hour in the evening in the sense that you're making yourself feel a certain way but is that feeling even if it's you know a relative calm or a relative peace is it maybe masking kind of deeper underlying issues which are very likely just to rise back up again once you are back in your daily life and you're not doing your breathing practice and you put up a really interesting post on instagram recently about breath work not being a cure for everything or at least uh, on its own not being a cure for any for everything so for people who maybe don't have uh biofeedback machines <laughs> who, who maybe what is the best way in your opinion to kind of develop this i guess maybe self-feedback of knowing when breathwork practices are maybe serving as a distraction or when we're actually maybe heading in the right direction in terms of what we're working with with relation to our breathing it's a really good question and it's the number one question when people reach out that they ask how, how can we take what everyone's like, this is awesome. This is cool. This makes sense. I don't have five to $10,000 to spend on a machine and in software and all this stuff to figure this out. Um, how do I do this without a machine? Totally sensible question. Let me step back for a second and say that generally speaking, the larger kind of cultural environment that we live in is to define what we are based on doing. 
and and we've heard everyone's heard of this distinction between doing and being and, and we're so fixated on doing because we have we we're convinced that we have to do in order to be and so we bring this larger cultural backdrop with us when we approach breath work so we instinctively think breath work is a matter of doing more the problem is that we're already doing too much. The problem is that we're already doing too much with everything in general, but with our breathing specifically, we're doing too much and we're doing it unconsciously and we're manipulating our breathing behavior all the time. We're getting in the way of our innate respiratory reflexes and we're distorting them to self-soothe, to feel better, to dump CO2, to take the edge off of stress, the same way someone takes a drink at night or smokes some marijuana or takes marijuana in any number of forms or, or whatever. It's, it's the same attempt to self-regulate. So the first thing I always say is breathing, functional breathing is really a matter of doing less, not more. Let the breathing breathe itself. Don't do the breathing. That's what Dr. Litchfield says all the time. That's like his core line. And so the first step that I would recommend, think of it as a, a three-step process. Self-awareness, self-understanding, self-intervention. We immediately jump to the self-intervention, right? Um, and the, the, the end process is self-regulation. So self-awareness, self-understanding, self-intervention, self-regulation. And we, we jump to self-intervention immediately. We're so hungry in the breathwork community for tell me how I should breathe, right? Um, and so the first step, in my opinion, is just to spend time with your breathing. Just observe your breathing. That's number one, right? It sounds outlandish and crazy, right? Just actually pay attention to the thing you're already trying to change. So before you try to change it, notice it. What's going on, right? Um, and when you start observing your breathing, this is really a window into observing your body as a whole. What is... Are you so many people live day to day life completely unaware of the fact that they have a body, that they're actually embodied, that they're having a physical experience, and that there's something that it's like to be in that body, that that embodiment is not neutral, it's a, it's um, saturated with all sorts of meanings that we put on it emotionally. And so our breathing is at the heart of all of this. It's trying to manage all of these psychological movements, um, cognitive movements, emotional movements, um, all of these things happening at once. And so just take five, 10 minutes a day and just simply notice what it feels like to breathe. And notice in particular in your body and in your breathing, where is there unnecessary tension? Where is there unnecessary effort? Well, why, why is that there? When do you notice that tension being there? What are the triggers? What are the situational triggers that give rise to tightness in your chest? 
What are situational triggers that give rise to tightness in your jaw, holding your breath, aborting exhales, forcing inhales? Okay, so let, let's actually um, develop some nuance here of what's going on. And you might find, and I'm not just being hyperbolic here, I'm not just overstating this, you might find that just by taking time on a daily basis to observe your breathing, to observe when you get in the way and you start efforting, right? You start controlling the breathing and trying to force it in a particular kind of way. You become a, um, when that happens, where that happens, why that happens, and then you can let go of it. And you can allow natural breathing to come back a little bit. You might find that many of your symptoms completely abate as a result of that. Okay? So why not start there? Why not start with no technique? Just be aware first. I mean, it just makes so much sense. So to me, that's the place to start. And if you want to get, so that's the general place to start. Then if you really want to get more nuanced, look at the actual kind of anatomy of the breath. In particular, I find that there's a lot of valuable information at the end of the exhale. There's a lot that's communicated about the state of the nervous system at the end of the exhale. And we forget that when we're born, we, we mark the beginning of life with the first breath. But really, the first thing that happens is an exhale to clear everything, the fluid and everything. And then it's creating that room to draw in the inhale. So the exhale is, is a really interesting phase of the breath. And the end of the exhale in particular, if you have a very well-regulated nervous system, the exhale should just be this totally passive process, this letting go. And it should just land very nicely into a space of stillness and quiet with no agitation no angst, no panic, and then there should just be this pause. And then the breathing reflex kicks in, and then the air comes from the diaphragm, is pulled in. There's no unnecessary effort where you're reaching for air to pull it in. And you'll find that you're, when you start to breathe, when you start to pay attention to your breathing in this way, within minutes you can see that less is more that how hard you, you are used to trying to breathe, you don't need that much effort, that very little effort goes so much farther. Um, and one of the things you notice on a capno trainer is that the more you try to breathe and the bigger your breath, the breaths you try to take, the worse your respiratory chemistry gets. Less is more. Um, so you can achieve that just by practicing basic mindfulness of breath and body. I would have come to breath work through the more um, intense versions, I guess, like things like the Wim Hof method. Uh, and I was lucky enough to actually tr like train with Wim, not as an instructor, but I got to spend like time with him personally. And, you know, he is very much, he's an amazing man, really inspiring, but he's very much kind of like more, <laughs> you know, do more, push yourself more, uh, breathe more, hold your breath longer, spend time in the ice more. Uh, and he has a softer side to himself as well, of course. But it was only a few years after that I bought a book on um, Taoist breathing techniques. Mm -hmm. And I came across, the first time I'd come across the concept of um, Wu Wei, 
which I think one of the translations is like effortless effort, where, you know, to breathe, there's going to be some work happening, you know, within your body, for sure, your muscles are going to be working, there's going to be, it's not a completely passive process. But as you sort of said, like not, not applying effort to the point of tension, when it's not essential to do so. And for me, that was just transformative. And just again, this idea that like, okay, I don't always need to be I don't know, focusing or, or pushing or striving is maybe the best word I can think of that sometimes it's okay, as you said, just to be in this being mode and, and, and let things unfold. And like, I find for me, when I kind of connect to that, like time slows down <laughs> and, uh, you know, stuff that seemed really, I guess, sort of like looming beforehand in my mind just doesn't feel as important anymore and stuff. And it's a, uh, I think sometimes it can be like a hard sell, you know, to kind of like uh, you don't see too many training programs on like, you know, doing less. But it's a it's an incredibly interesting thing to explore. Yeah, I love everything you just said. (laughs) (laughs) We we are Brian, we are kindred spirits. Um, There's there's three things in particular. I'll start with the last thing that you said. Uh, I think that's a big part of why there's so much confusion and why there's so much. Um, this sounds arrogant. I'm not trying to be arrogant, but I think there's a lot of bad information about breathing and breath work that's out there. And it's out there because it's very hard to to push a business on Instagram if you're telling people just to be self-aware. right you have to give them a product and a product then is a technique or a workshop where you teach a technique or 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 whatever um so i'm not i'm not trying to affront on anyone's business or whatever but but that's just that's the truth um you brought up the concept of wu wei which is amazing and wu wei is literally what we're talking about effortless action or effortless effort and, and the Taoists have a wonderful analogy about a freshly cut piece of wood. And if you hold a, a freshly cut piece of wood, there's a grain to the wood. And if you run your hand with the grain, it's very smooth. If you run your hand against the grain, it's very rough and you're going to get splinters and it's going to cause pain. This is the most beautiful analogy for how we relate to our own nature, how we relate to our own physiology, and that there's a certain way things operate. And if we have awareness of what that way is, we can position ourselves to work with it. Minimal effort. Why? Because we're following our nature. And the telltale sign that you are not following your nature is tension, effort strain. And when it comes to breathing and you look at something like Wim Hof, it is, is it a cool party trick? Yeah, it is. Is it completely one dimensional? Yes. Will it wreak havoc on your baseline breathing as a whole, the other whole part of your life outside of doing Wim Hof? Yeah, it's going to create dysfunctional breathing, in my opinion. And I've seen it repeatedly. Um, when you put someone who does Wim Hof on a Capno trainer. In fact, I have um, colleagues who work with different populations and one particular colleague who has worked with, I can't tell you how many people who have developed panic attacks, uh, chronic tinnitus, 
headaches, migraines, et cetera, and didn't realize it was because of the Wim Hof training that they were doing. And when they were put on the Capno trainer, uh, their respiratory chemistry, their CO2 levels were, were horrible. Um, I, I think the Wim Hof method, and I, I'm going to get pushback from this because people are very religious about it because it makes them feel a certain way and they want to protect that. Um, sympathetic arousal is not something that our culture, generally speaking, lacks. We're in sympathetic overdrive. If you want to use the analogy of a car, we're all living with a broken brake pedal and our foot stuck on the gas. That's how we live. And so you bring, you introduce a breathing technique that's just going to like put, take the engine of that car and make it a turbo engine. Like, does that make any sense? How is that helpful? Um, and so if you, if you want to walk around in this hyper sympathetic state, like you're heavily caffeinated, um, then, then great, go ahead. Um, but I, I just, there, there is value to hyperventilation that it can be a really interesting space where you can allow people to confront the fact that, um, that a lot of their symptoms and emotional issues and breathing issues, I'm sorry, a lot of their symptoms and emotional issues are actually tied to their breathing responses to a stimulus in their life. And you can use hyperventilation to illustrate that. That's not very, I'm not explaining this very clearly. Okay, so most people in real time, there's a, there's a stimulus of some kind that creates an internal state that someone doesn't like, that stress, that brings symptoms, et cetera. Most people, because they lack self-awareness, they think that the stimulus is the cause of the state. But what breath work can do, I think when it's at its best, when you start with self-awareness, is you can allow someone to separate the stimulus and the physiological response, right? That, that, there's, that there's a difference between the two and that the symptoms that they experience are not from the stimulus. The symptoms are the cause of the dysfunctional breathing response. And once they realize that, you've now, you've now restored agency in that person because they realize that they have control over their breathing, they have the ability to be self-aware, and they have the ability to recognize when that behavior is arising to make shifts in their awareness and even make shifts in their self-intervention, some sort of technique if it goes that far. Um, hyperventilation is a wonderful tool can be a wonderful tool to allow people to bring on their symptoms. So we call this guided over-breathing, where you coach someone into a state of hypocapnia, which is low CO2, hyperventilation, and then you allow them to see all the content physiologically in the body and psychologically and emotionally that comes out while they're doing that. And then they become aware of the fact, oh, wow, I just created that. In the absence of the stimulus that typically creates this, I just created that by hyperventilating. Right? Wow, 
right? It's so my stress and my symptoms are from my response. So, so I think that's where hyperventilation can be very useful. Um, I practice Wim Hof uh, uh, two years ago for six months straight every day because I wanted to be able to um, to talk from experience, just my personal experience. And if you have wonderful experiences with Wim Hof and and it changed your life in some particular kind of way, you don't have to listen to anything I'm saying, right? I'm not, I'm not, right? I mean, I'm just one person, so what do I know? Um, but I found it to be, um, it's fascinating. It leads to all sorts of really interesting disassociative experiences. And that feeling you get in that breath hold where it's almost like someone takes an eraser. If you were, if someone, if you were just a sketch on a whiteboard with marker, right? That that extended three four minute breath hold after the uh, sequences of of hyperventilation. To me, it felt like someone was erasing, kind of the edges of me. So there was just this total like I was disembodied. And, and that's just, that's hypocapnia, and then you're holding your breath, and then you're slowly allowing that CO2 to pull back. Um, so it gives you that bizarre experience that a lot of people think is calm and, and whatever. Um, I just personally noticed that it made me more anxious and agitated for the rest of the day, by far. Way more on edge. And it also... Um, it impacted my breathing behavior for the rest of the day that I was breathing in abnormal ways and developing breathing uh, behaviors like holding my breath. If I was getting stressed out, I noticed I started doing that a lot more. Um, so on and so forth. I'm, I'm bashing Wim Hof too much. If, if it serves you and you enjoy it, awesome. Keep doing it. I just, I don't think I think it should be one potential tool, one potential self-intervention tool in the toolbox. It shouldn't be the only thing you do. I'd love to refer back to something you mentioned earlier, which I thought was really interesting. Um, or it's just a lovely way of phrasing it, I guess. And this is the idea of re-educating childhood habits. Um, and I know something that you have, uh, or something that you released recently, although I haven't been able to get it yet in Ireland, is your breathing workbook for teens. And so I would love to hear your thoughts or your ideas around this idea of re-educating childhood habits um, and where things like mindfulness and breath work come into play with that. So in my, my job, uh, I'm a well-being coordinator for a school district and I work with schools all over the US in creating mindfulness program and social emotional learning. Um, for those of you who don't know what social and emotional learning is, it's the idea that if we look at the evolution of human attachment and human development, that social connection and emotional safety are prerequisites for optimal plasticity. And this is largely because we are born with unfinished brains. We are the closest thing in nature to a blank slate. Um, in 2003, the Human Genome Project 
that ended a 13-year study into mapping out the human genome. They discovered that we only have 20,000 um, chromosomes, and they thought that there would be hundreds of thousands of chromosomes. That's because we have 86 billion neurons up here that form hundreds of trillions of connections. And so what they basically realized at the end of the Human Genome Project was that um, we are determined at birth, our program is much less than they previously thought, that our brains are really designed to be molded by the demands of our unique environment. And this is our superpower, that, that our brains have the ability to do this. But this happens because we have this, most of the brain development has to occur outside of the womb. So our period of dependency is so much longer than anything else on the planet. We have to depend on our parents while we're learning and adapting to our environment. And the only way that can happen is if what's in place, human connection, social connection, and emotional safety. So our ability to learn has built within it social connection and emotional safety. And so my background is in social emotional learning. So how do we take these principles and put them into schools and in classrooms? Because so many teachers show up to school and they think they're only teaching literature or mathematics or biology or whatever. And they don't understand that what they're really teaching children and young adults is the state of their nervous system. What they're really teaching is human connection and emotional safety. And they're teaching the nervous systems in that room that either the environment is an opportunity to explore and learn about, which is what we want, because we can, we can creatively explore our environment then and, and reach our human potential in that type of environment, or we're communicating with our nervous system that the world is a threat. And, and when that happens, um, we know that human beings devolve into pre-mammalian program behavior fight, flight, freeze, right? And so we wanna create learning spaces and learning environments where educators understand the importance of creating community and connection and safety. So um, the Mindful Breathing Workbook for Teens comes out of all this work that I've done in this realm, creating mindfulness in schools as a way of co-regulating. So if you're a teacher in a classroom, or you're a parent at home with your family. This is one of the core insights of emotional, social and emotional intelligence is that the person of influence in any situation establishes the emotional climate and tone. So if you're a parent, you're a teacher, you're a coach, you're a mentor of some kind, your nervous system is the one that's calibrating everyone else around you. And if you lack self-awareness and you can't self-regulate, then everyone around you is going to be dysregulated as well. And so teaching mindfulness in schools creates this opportunity where teachers can sit with students in a space that's still and quiet and safe and regulating and connect, right? And, and we know from, from birth that some of the most uh, important information in terms of regulation that an infant gets from its caregiver, primary caregiver is the mother, is that ability to be held, 
to be still and to just mirror each other's breathing and, and physiological um, processes. And so when you create a space where people can sit and be still and quiet and breathe together, it's deeply co-regulating. It allows everyone to kind of settle into a space where they're all connected. So I created the book out of this work and attempted to kind of formalize it. And the idea is, is that if we can, if we can help young adults build that self-awareness piece and use their breath to do that, they can avoid and prevent so many of these other issues that arise down the road. If you can get a young adult to be aware of the fact of how their breathing is manipulated and changed as a result of their emotional arousal, just that alone is huge. One of the things I like to do, and this is in the workbook, is I like to start class when I'm working with students and I'll just ask them to sit down, to be still, to be quiet, to close their mouth, breathe through their nose. If they want, they can close their eyes. They feel safe doing that. If they wanna keep them open, just have them down at a 45 degree angle, the soft downward gaze. And they can put a hand on their chest and a hand on their belly. And I just ask them, take a moment and simply notice the fact that you're having an experience and what sort of information are your breath and your body giving you right now in this moment. And so they have this moment to just stop and pay attention and connect. And then I ask them on a scale of one to 10, 10 being very anxious, super anxious, one being almost asleep, five being perfectly balanced between alertness and calm. Give yourself a number on that scale right now. What are your breath and your body telling you right now about where you're at on that scale of one to 10? And so I'll give them a few moments and then I'll say, you know, where are you at? And someone will say, I'm at a seven. I'll say, that's outstanding that you recognize that. Let me ask you a question. How do you know that you're at a seven? And they'll say, because, and they'll give some abstract answer. This is at the beginning of the year usually. And I'll say, okay, but what's your body telling you about the fact that you're at a seven or your breath? And that is when they'll say, oh, I have this slight tightness in my chest. And I'm like, now we're cooking. You're actually reading information, sensation and tension in the body to understand your level of arousal. This is the most important life skill. Why? Because tension in the body, sensation in the body drives behavior and decision-making. And if you're not aware of the tension and sensation that is unfolding in your body in real time, you're going to be constantly behaving in reactive, emotionally reactive ways. And you're gonna be making decisions that are misguided and you're gonna be attaining life outcomes that represent that total lack of self-awareness. And so when a student can say, I'm at a seven, and a few weeks later I say, why are you at a seven? And they say, I'm aborting my exhales. I don't feel safe at the end of my exhale. I have tension in my jaw. 
There's a lot of pressure behind my eyes. My shoulders are unnecessarily tense. Beautiful, wonderful, right? This is outstanding. And then I'll say, now what can you do? I can relax my shoulders. I can loosen my jaw. I can let go, put in the intention to let go more at the end of the exhale. All right, let's go do that for two minutes. Then we come back and I'll say, what's your score now? I'm at a four. Beautiful. Now we're ready to learn. Right? So it's allowing students. I co-regulate with them. Some days I'll say, I'm at an eight. And they'll say, Mr. Duar, why are you at an eight? And I'll say, oh my gosh, I got, I got, I feel like my head's going to explode. I got pain in my upper gut, right? For me, it's right here. This is my, my stress spot, right at the top of my stomach. When I know it starts getting tight in there, that's my first sign of I'm really moving up quickly, right? So it's, it's giving, the workbook is taking these exercises and it's giving kids these tools so that they can become self-aware because you cannot skillfully self-regulate if you lack self-awareness. And, and this is one of, the, I think, the best lines in the workbook is our, our worst habits are really unskillful attempts to manage stress. Our worst habits are unskillful attempts to self-regulate. And so when we develop that awareness piece in kids and in adults, um, I think it's just, it's so profound. I, I heard you mention that, that, that quote there on a different podcast. And I think for me, it was hearing it phrased that way, created within me at least an incredible amount of like self-compassion in a way that, you know, are kind of like our bad habits or our, our, our tendencies that maybe don't actually serve us in the way that we hope they would are just these attempts to make ourselves feel safer or more in control and um yeah i think it's a, it's just such a beautiful way to phrase it and when you spoke there about the the primary the, the primary regulation between mother and child being the sinking of breathing um that's just such a beautiful thing and one of the questions i actually i kind of had wanted to ask you on this podcast um was if someone was a parent or a caregiver in any way and and, and wanted to introduce some mindfulness and, and breathing techniques with, with teenagers or, or even younger kids. Because I, I just remember when I was younger, I had a temper, like not all the time, but when I lost my temper, it would be like pretty bad. And I would just think that like, if my mother had said to me then just, you know, like, oh, just pay attention to your breathing. I'm not sure I would have responded very well. Um, but I sort of maybe feel like the, if I was to get a guess your answer now that the, the regulation or the, the state of the caregiver or the parent is as important as the state of the, of the child that you're looking to help. You said it hundred percent that it's the, the self-awareness of the adult is what's communicated. Stephen Porges, who's a researcher, um, he has, he's the, the mind behind the polyvagal theory. He has a term called neuroception. And neuroception is 
his term for what appears to be our unconscious ability to read the nervous systems of other people and then calibrate our nervous system in response. And he calls it neuroception instead of perception, because when we talk about perception, there's a sense of being in control or being conscious of what's being processed. But neuroception is, is happening at a background, a very base level. Um, and so as an educator, and you see, you see this all the time, that teachers will be communicating things verbally, but their nervous system is communicating something else. And when you look at the class and the students, they're responding not to what's being verbally said, they're responding to the state of the nervous system. And so um, as much as it's normal as a parent to want to give advice verbally while being dysregulated, <laughs> it just doesn't work. We have a 14-year-old here at, at home, and I can think of so many times where I'm, I'm barking and I'm saying something, and I'm, I'm being, I'm just out of my mind or something. And what I'm saying is not being received. It's how I am that's being received. And so that's just, it's so important to remember that. So yeah, you hit it right on, right on target. So I, I, I would love to talk to you for longer. And I wish I had the more time. I feel like this, I would love to maybe extend this into a second or third episode. So I really do feel that you just have a wealth of information or a wealth of knowledge that uh, is, is, you know, it's definitely going to be great for, for people to hear it. But um, if it was okay with you, if you wouldn't mind, maybe if we concluded our conversation with you leading us on a, a simple little breathwork practice, that'd be beautiful. For sure. So one of the things in terms of starting an exercise that, and, and this is the influence of Zen on, on how I teach this, <laughs> is that I really don't prefer when people lie down. Um, self-aware, training self-awareness is different than training relaxation. And relaxation is wonderful and nice. Um, but that's not, when I, when I teach breath work, that's not what I'm after. I'm after insight. Because when you're aware, you can see. And when you can see things, you can let them go. And when you can let things go, then you actually have peace. That's what we're after. Whereas there's a difference between that type of peace and equanimity and just manufacturing relaxation. Right. Because that's it's just it's the difference between nutrition, eating something with actual nutrition and eating something that just tastes good, but has empty calories, basically. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is because I do almost all my breath work um, in a seated position and upright because we're trying to ultimately train a way of observing our experience, of being mindful of our experience. And you have to 
embody a posture that's conducive to doing that. And if you're on the ground, which again is great for relaxation or sleeping, but that when for me, that's not my target. That's not my goal. So if you can sit up straight, put your feet flat on the floor. Um, do whatever you would like to do with your hands. Just put them somewhere where they're not going to fidget. And you want the sense of that your ears are over your shoulders and your shoulders are over your hips. And once you feel like you're aligned vertically in that way, just lean back half an inch. And if you can, close your mouth and breathe through your nose. And if you want, you can close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that. I'm going to keep mine slightly open so I can keep an eye on the time. <laughs> and just to start, I want you to notice that there's something that it's like to be you right here, right now. You're in a body and there's something that it's like to be in that body. There's an experience. And so I'm gonna give you five to 10 seconds and just simply acquaint yourself with a general sense of your body as a whole. As you do that, you might notice where is your body most vivid for you? Where does your attention naturally funnel? Where is sensation most alive for you? And as you notice that, open your attention to other areas of the body that aren't as vivid. The bottoms of your feet, the tops of your feet, tops of your hands, maybe the middle of your back between your shoulder blades, maybe your shins. So you want to stretch that awareness out so it's not just pooling in one area of your experience, but that it's open and encompassing of the entirety of your body all at once. Now that your attention is anchored in your body as a whole, notice your breathing. And in the same way that you did with the body, notice immediately where your attention goes when I say notice your breathing. 
for example, as I did that, my attention immediately went to the top of my abdomen and the bottom of my chest. And as I noticed that, I opened my awareness to notice more. Flow of air coming in through the nose. A delicate tickle of air in the back of my throat. A slight movement of my shoulders and chest. And even the way that on inhales, my body seems to press down as a whole a little bit more into the chair that I'm sitting in. Now that you're paying attention to your breathing, make sure you haven't lost awareness of your body as a whole. So come back, feel the body. And as you feel the body, feel the breath. Don't simply trade one for the other. Feel them both simultaneously. Because your whole body is breathing. And as you feel your whole body breathe, continue to keep your attention open while also noticing your exhalation. In particular, the last half of your exhalation. And as I say this, don't do anything to your breathing. You shouldn't be breathing in any kind of way. You're just letting your breath breathe itself. And just notice what arises when you pay attention to the end of your exhale. And as you bring awareness there, does your breathing behavior change? This is something that happens as we begin a self-awareness practice with breathing is that when we pay attention to some part of our breathing, as soon as we put that attention on it, we, we change the behavior. So you wanna see if you can just simply notice without any change, without any manipulation, Goal is to first notice. And as you notice the end of the exhale, if there is any tension at the end where you feel like you can't let go of the exhale, exhale fully, see if you can consciously let go of that tension. 
And as you do that, is there a change in your inhale as a result? And because we don't have a ton of time, I'm just going to give you 30 seconds or so, and I'm going to stop talking. But I want you to feel your body as a whole. I want you to feel your whole body breathing. And I want you really to pay attention to the transitions of your breath. Where the exhale, let's go. And where the inhale picks up and where the inhale reaches its fullness and hands off to an effortless exhale. And I'm going to stop talking for 30 seconds and just let you bring awareness to those spaces. And if you notice any unnecessary effort, tension, or holding, See if you can let go. And at the end of your next exhale, don't change your breath in any way. The end of your, your next exhale. I want you simply to hold your breath. I want you to hold it. Not till it becomes really, really forceful. But till it becomes somewhat uncomfortable. And as you come to the end of that exhale, don't overreach on the first inhale. And just come back to your baseline breathing. This is where in class, I'll say to students, if there's some positive value or thought or recognition that you want to keep in the front of your mind. Feel free to bring it to the front of your attention. Some way of living that's important to you or some quality. 
maybe just an image of the person you aspire to be. Bring that front and center. And just imagine for the next two or three breaths, again, don't change them, that you're breathing in that quality, that you're filling up with that quality. Now you can wiggle your toes. You can wiggle your fingers. You can make a, a fist with your hands and open your fingers up. Stretch your head and neck side to side. Any movement that feels gentle and restorative. When I was in the monastery in Korea, monks taught me you can gently pull down and up on your ears. And it's very relaxing. Vagus nerve is in this area. So when we pull, it kind of stimulates that parasympathetic tone a little bit. And then if you haven't done so already, you can slowly open your eyes. And here we are, and this is the most important part, is you just spent some time doing something very noble, and that's paying attention to your experience to better understand what you are and how you are. And as you finish an exercise like this, there can be a tendency to want to flip a switch and immediately go back to everyday mind. Like, oh, I'm done, I'm done with the exercise. Now let me go back to, no. That now the exercise is actually beginning. And that's real life. And so you're, you're taking what you've just cultivated. The idea is, is that you're mindful of the transition out of the activity because you're trying to bring with what you just created, that level of awareness. You're bringing that with you as you move on to the rest of, of your day. Um, there's something else I was going to say, and I just forgot it. And it was important. <laughs> um, oh, what was I going to say it was so important. And I thought I'm going to forget it if I don't say it right now. But then I didn't. And I forgot it. Everything you did say was definitely very beautiful and very lovely, though. <laughs> Um, I really, I think that's such a, a really valuable point that maybe sometimes gets forgotten or missed the, that kind of your practice begins when the exercise ends. Um, yeah. it's a really, really beautiful point to finish on. Um, I, yes, I, I think it's really important because we, we compartmentalize, we've gotten used to compartmentalizing everything. Mm -hmm. And that creates a whole host of issues. And so when we're talking about really spending the time to do the type of work we were just doing, I honestly personally don't think there's anything more important to do as a human being than to do that type of work. And so as you're transitioning out of it, you're not leaving it behind, you're taking it with. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, 
the real important piece. Um, what I was going to say is that some people say, well, that's great. I can be calm when I sit there in a formal posture doing a formal practice like that. And it's great. It's life that's difficult, so on and so forth. The point is, is if you don't have the formal practice as your touchstone, then it's going to be impossible to execute any of these insights or experiences in real time. And so, uh, and I love touchstone because what a touchstone is, I believe a touchstone determines the real quality of metals and stones to see if it's a, a false metal or a false stone, like fool's gold or whatever. So a touchstone is something that actually shows if something is real or not, the actual truth of something. And when you think of formal practice, taking 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day to do what we just did, that's your touchstone. That's truth. When you have that time to engender that perspective and that insight, again, into who and what you are, then as you move into the other dimensions of your life, you have something to compare the events of the world to, which means you have the ability to maintain perspective, to realize this isn't real. This particular event that's making me feel this particular way, or my response to it is making me feel this particular way, I can recognize that there's a lack of truth there, that I don't need to buy into this particular emotional experience that's arising. How do I know that? I know that because I have a regular practice where I can experience these things arising and I can practice not reacting to them and letting them go. And I can use an awareness of the breath to do that. That's where the breath work piece is so important. So I'll stop. I'm rambling, but um, very important stuff. I personally, I find your rambles um, very insightful and uh, <laughs> very, very inspiring. So just want to say again, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and have this conversation. Um, I, I look forward to, to learning much more from you in the future. And um, yeah, I would definitely love to get you on again sometime to to yeah talk about a few more things i feel like there was plenty more we didn't even get a chance to to touch on but um yeah thank you again so much for your time and, and for your insights for sure thank you brian thank you for having me and i'll be sure to communicate to my wife that someone finds value in my ramblings <laughs> i'm gonna tell her today <laughs> i found someone there's someone <laughs> i only need one person if you get through the right. one person it's worth it <laughs> I, I appreciate it <laughs> <laughs>